Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. So on today's episode, we have on another special guest. His name is Keith Belvin. He is a crisis specialist, author, and educator. Thank you for coming to the show, Keith. Oh, thank you for having me, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, definitely. And so just to uh, give the listeners a little bit of background information about you, could you tell them a little bit more about what you do? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm a crisis specialist, author, and educator. So what that means is I'm a therapist who deals with people in crisis. Um, I am the person that people contact when folks are at their wits end and not sure what they're going to do. I work with uh, women, men and children, but mostly women. But I do work with some men and I do work with some children who are in crisis. Um, I am a five, six time author. I have a new book coming out April 1st. And I'm a former educator in the New York City Department of Education. I now live in Delaware but I'm also an educational consultant. So I run an um, after-school program mentoring young men. And so I do that twice a week now, as well as uh, if I have to do presentations for um, teachers, I'm there for that as well. And I think the last, well, I'm aware of any hats. I'm also a, a mental health consultant with the Department of Justice with the ATF um, branch of the DOJ, where I counsel agents and other workers with the ATF on how to deal with mental health crisis between when they get off from work and when they get home. So I wear a lot of hats. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Just from uh, hearing that introduction. Yeah. And so what that tells me is that to be spread that thin, or if you even want to be, want to call it spread thin, because it really just depends on, you know, how invested somebody is. You can never say you're spread thin when you're doing something you like to do. But um, what would you say it was about this work that you do that caught your interest and made it to where this is something you could really put yourself into to that degree? Um, it was the 20 plus years of teaching. Um, mm-hmm. Over the over that time, I knew what I was strong at. I knew what I actually did very well. And so when I left New York in 2016, I had a plan on moving into the mental health arena because I saw that parents were struggling with assistance. I had worked with kids. That was easy. But I realized that their parents were struggling with getting help. I would hear all the time is that there's just no help out there. I don't know who to talk to. So one of the decisions that I made was to to move into the mental health um, arena because I just felt I brought something to the table. Plus, um, I read a book from Pastor Max Lucado that said, if you want to figure out what your God's gift is, live your life backwards. And through that, Look at the things that you did very well that did things that just came easy that other people say, how are you able to do that? Or even things like, in my case, talking. Um, I used to be told to shut up. You talk too much and all this other (laughs) stuff. Now I'm actually paid to do it. And that's what I realized is that I was a person that people came to for advice. I was the person that people leaned on for protection. And I just simply, in my later years after leaving the Department of Education, was moved into a position to become that. And work on my own. So I own two different companies, but are I'm in a position to help as many people as possible. So that's where it comes from. And that's wonderful. I respect it. And something that popped into my head when you're telling that first part, at least about uh, the parents looking for help, uh, it kind of made me go on the lines of thinking just how much, I guess, the shortcomings or maybe like the lack of development that the parents might have can unfortunately limit some of the progress of those kids that you might've been teaching. And so let's kind of touch on that a little bit. What would you say was, uh, is one of the biggest things that a lot of people don't think about whenever they may look at some of these kids that might be in these inner city schools and such, and they might demonize the kids and say all these negative things about them, but they don't go back and reflect to see where these kids, that type of households, the kids might be coming from. What would you say to something like that? Well, that you spoke on it right there. First of all, every child is born a blank slate. And so um, by the time by the time a child starts school, what they know is fostered by whatever the parents have poured into them or lack of. Mm -hmm. So I used to say this all the time and I actually still say it. A child is only in the care of a school 30 hours. That is a day and a quarter. The other five and three quarters, they are home. And if we don't hold parents accountable to at least what they're doing or not doing, if we don't look at the environment where children come from, we cannot blame the children for what they were not given, what they were given, and what they had no access to. Often, educators who can't see past themselves blame the child. Well, I got a problem with that because you took the check 
And if you took the check and you walked into an urban school, then your job is to not only reach the kid, your job is to reach the parent. So often what I would do is teach the parent through the kid. I would make sure I gave the kid quality information. Then I would say, go home and have a conversation with your parents if you can, and then come back and let's have that conversation in class. Also, you have to be um, less intimidated when parents come up and then less intimidating when you're working with parents because they may feel uncomfortable because they see the degrees on the wall. They know that you're an educator, but you have to be real. And that's something that I've always been is just a regular dude. I'm I'm an urban kid and I make parents comfortable. So once they're comfortable, they can share what they don't know. They can share what they do know or the shame of just making mistakes goes out the window because they understood I was here to fix it. So I would say to anyone, what you have to look at is you cannot blame the child for what they were allowed to become. All right. And that makes me think of another question. Actually, do you ever, did you ever experience the flip side of that where maybe parents who may not have been taking as much accountability as they should put too much pressure on the educators to develop the kids and, and had issues whenever, let's say a kid wasn't making the grades that he needed to make or was, wasn't behaving properly. Because I know at least when I came up through school, that was something that seemed to be an occurrence sometimes where the parents would point the finger at somebody else's if they weren't the ones raising the kids. Oh, without question. Listen, teachers are always going to be the scapegoats because you got some parents who see us as babysitters and they want their kid to become this magical uh, child. And they put that weight on the educator, as you mentioned. But the problem is it's not a realistic view. As I mentioned, a child is only in school 30 hours. And that's if they were with me the whole 30 hours. They're with sometimes other teachers. Now, when they're younger, they're with one or two teachers. But once they get a little older, they're with maybe five or six different teachers throughout the week. So parents do come with unrealistic expectations. And then some parents come with very high expectations, but they don't understand that in a public school system, there's only but so much a teacher can do depending on the resources that that educator has. So a good educator will make use of everything as well as even talk to the parents and see what other assistance they can get from the parents to help as well. So again, it's it's a matter of understanding where the parent is coming from with what they see and how they see it with their child. I do advocate for parents to be very stern and very push, uh, very pushbackish, I'll say, and that's not even a word, but I'll make it up for tonight, because you are your child's voice. Do not give in to the system that says we can't or that's not possible. No, push until a principal literally says that's just not doable. Okay. Because if you push and be that that parent with some parents, I don't want to be that parent. Yeah, you need to be because you are your child's voice. And often when teachers realize you're that parent that will come up and engage them, if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, they get on top of what they're supposed to do. I've never worried about that because I found if you just do what you're supposed to do from the beginning, then your door is open without having to worry about anybody rushing in and having anything negative. Now, that don't mean they're going to like you. And I've had some parents that don't like me, but it's okay. Because at the end of the day, is your child being taught at a rate that allows them to be successful? That was never an argument in my classroom. So I never worried about if a parent liked or did not like, but they could not argue that I was professional as well as I made sure their child had the greatest opportunity to learn. Well, I'm sure that a lot of your students probably appreciated that. And something I like to ask about the follow-up on that is, you know, teaching is already a tough job, I would imagine, at least from what I've heard from uh, other people that I know that are teachers, it's extremely tough, especially uh, when you're in environments kind of like what you talked about being like an inner city or maybe in uh, environments where the kids come from underprivileged backgrounds. And so one question I would ask you is what was some besides like their socioeconomic status, what would you say was the main factor in a lot of the backgrounds that these kids you were teaching that made your job more difficult? Hmm. Well, taking the social economics off the table, because that's the major, um, that's the, the, the biggest umbrella of all. Mm-hmm. It is actually the lack of preparation by other professionals. You literally had other teachers hurting these kids by not being prepared. Oh, wow. Teaching is the easiest job on the planet when you don't care, because you can literally just pass the kids. No one complains about a passing grade. No one complains that the kid is not actually learning because most parents say, show me a report card. They see that you're passing. They don't stress. 
They don't stop and go, what did you learn? But it's the toughest job if you do care, because then that kid in the back who's not learning bothers you. You want to make sure that the good kid or the, not, I'm take that back. I hate using that good or bad. The, the kid who is of a higher learning capacity, you want to make sure that you don't pull them backwards in, in the way. So you have to learn how to deal with multiple intellects at the same time in a classroom. That requires the teacher to be on point with their content. A lot of teachers don't want to do that. And so what they do is they try to force children into the box that they're comfortable in. They're teaching the same lessons that they taught four or five years ago, and they're trying to do a lot of things that they've done in the past. And because of that, the kids are almost like on a, on a, on a hamster wheel, just going around and around in circles where if you really do care, then your lessons are ever changing to match the social economic situation, matching what the kids are into. Your conversation changes. Everything changes like music. You are not listening to the same music today that you were listening to five years ago, 10 years ago. Teaching is supposed to be the same. But unfortunately, and again, to answer your question, second to social economic situations would be the lack of professionality in many teachers who go into urban environments. And would you say that that uh, lack of professionality or that lack of care comes from a difference in background or what, what would you say is the root of that? Oh, right there. Without question. If I don't connect to the neighborhoods or to the kids that come from these neighborhoods, why would I care? Now, yes, some do, but overall, it's the reason why we fight for community policing. Because a policeman who comes into a neighborhood that he has no connection to, there's no extra motivation to try to reach these children. So you come in and just police. That's not good enough. Well, it's the same thing with educators. I've watched educators get out of school and literally come because they want to try to pay off their student loans. So within three to four years, the program that they may be in will give them a, a steep discount on their student loan if they stay three years, stay five years. They do that and then they leave. Um, and nobody wants to go into the more difficult schools. I was in the more difficult schools in Bed-Stuy and Harlem and Canarsie and Flatbush. And what I found is that the teachers who really wanted to be there understood the hood. They understood how to speak to these kids. They understood that urban kids have a whole different language and mindset. And it is on. it is imperative for an educator to learn that language, speak that language and present content that the kid can benefit from that unfortunately not everybody did so yes there was no connection so hence when there's no connection there's no true learning to the deeper level yeah you gave them content but you didn't actually reach them for it to, to sink in oh okay i see so that difference in culture you know lack of connection and the content not being tailored to the specific type of kids that were being taught led to a lot of kids being left behind or not getting the education that they deserve. And it's not a color thing either, because mm -hmm. I have seen um, teachers of different persuasions than the children in the communities that they live in get as much out of urban kids as a teacher of the same color. Because once a child knows you care, color goes out the window. Mm -hmm. Because children don't play the race card, they're taught it. And I tell this to people all the time. If you ever want to see what, the purity is before racism has a chance to set in. Just go to the park. Just sit there and watch. Now, don't go by yourself. You look kind of weird and you have parents calling <laughs> police on you. But what you do is you go to the park <laughs> and watch the way children play. This is what you'll see. One, children don't care what color you are. You want to play? Let's play. You could show up with a child in a wheelchair. One or two kids will come over and get that wheelchair. And you have to tell the kid, don't, no, don't push it too fast. But they'll be wheeling them around as fast as anything else. Also, children set up rules. Children will live, literally give you a bio of everybody here. Oh, no, no, that, that's Kamani. That's Keith. And then don't get Keith upset because he, he fights. And, and they'll literally tell you everybody. They'll tell you what goes on. And then let's go play. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, is what, it is the implicit bias that comes from the parents who goes, no, no, no. I don't want you playing with Kamani. Why? I don't like him. I don't like the way he looks. Okay, well, there's the start. There's the seed. I don't, I don't like, the, I don't want you to play with Keith. He's a big guy. We, we don't play with fat people. I didn't even get a chance to say anything. Now the kid, there's another seed planted. So what do you think happens as that child grows? That seed is watered because of what the parents have planted there. But if you ever want to see pure joy, go and watch children in the playground. They literally don't have those, those racist overtones until it is taught to them. Okay, so we at least know that color isn't an issue going into the school. It isn't. Right, right. And so we talked about 
the cultural part of that. And that leads into maybe some people not uh, getting educated in the way that they should. But mm-hmm. something I like to talk about, I guess that's related to the niche of the, of the show, kind of gearing towards young men now, mm-hmm. is just like how someone coming from like a different culture or, you know, being a different skin color and, you know, maybe with that racism put in there can mm-hmm. lead to kids not being able to get the most from their environment that they're in. Let's kind of gear that towards towards boys. And so uh, I'm sure you may have heard some of the talks or anything about young boys being left behind in school with the graduation rates being lower for them, probably especially in inner city. And then with college now, it becoming an even bigger thing where much less young men are enrolling in school or finishing mm-hmm. school, aren't getting their degrees and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so the questions or the two questions really I would pose is one kind of going into what you said about, you know, having that influence from the person, mm-hmm. do you think that has to do with maybe not as many educators being men? And then two, if that's not as big of an issue, what do you think the real issue is with the education system that's leading to where it's failing young boys? I think it's twofold. You touched on one of not interacting with um, males in the younger years. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't, get that role model um, connection early. Um, They may not see solid male teachers until middle school. So a lot of times in the element, like the elementary school that I worked in Brooklyn, there was only two males in the whole building. I was one as a physical education, health education teacher. And we had one was a specialized teacher or three. Um, And that was it. So three males in the building and one wound up getting in trouble. So he wound up leaving. So there was two. So, Here's some kids up until their fifth grade year are not going to interact with a, a male educator, which during those very impressionable years, it could help. Now, of course, you then take into account the family structure. Now, the one thing I can say that would help is that if more emphasis was paid on how do we reach young men in those earlier years that are non-sports and athletic, um, athletically connected, meaning getting kids into reading, getting kids into coding, getting kids into chess, getting the young men into other areas that they could excel in and then explaining to them why they could benefit from it. That doesn't require a male. Um, it requires anybody who's caring enough to sit the young men down and saying, okay, you're in second grade, third grade, but let me show you coding. Let me show you art. Let me show you chess and then hand that off to some of the men that they may come about. It also takes color out of the picture. The the school that I worked in in Flatbush, it was mixed. Um, But what I found was that the students were mixed too. So you had kids from all over, white, black, uh, Europe, Africa, Asia. You had kids from all over. You had teachers from all over. And so because of that, and to see the kids doing well was because the overall feel of the school and where it was in Flatbush, again, the social economics was different. So now you were able to reach many of the young men because there were programs in place that weren't just centered on young men, but included young men enough to be able to show them the benefit of being a part of this. So their voices mattered. And when you do that and you expose them to other things besides uh, music and, and, and athletics, all of a sudden now you can see the full child um, be reached. And for young men, it is really acceptance because young women mature faster then young men, men don't, the boys don't catch up till about seventh grade, eighth grade physically. But in those younger years, and this is why if you think about it, this is why you see a lot of young girls playing sports at the younger stages, because they're actually more developed than the boys so they can actually play. That doesn't spread out till about seventh grade, eighth grade, and definitely by high school, the boys are where they need to be at. And that's why in those younger elementary stages, if teachers of all persuasions fed into giving the young men full, well-rounded um, looks into what life could be. Oh, we could reach tons of young men to change the situation, even in the lesser uh, economic areas, because when we have shown that you give young men something to be connected to, they gravitate to it and, and do very well. Um, I think it's 209, I believe is a school that I was connected to when I did the middle school in um, downtown Brooklyn, they had a chess group, nationally um, certified, a ranked chess club of young men and young women. These are urban kids playing chess on a high level. Why? Because they had males and females 
who came in and gave them pride to learn the game and then exposed them to things outside of the Brooklyn bubble. And all of a sudden they took to it, as well as the young men realized there's something more than athletics and music. So to your point, if you provide the, 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 the foundation, young men will gravitate to it and actually grow from it. Hmm. So just to make sure I'm understanding correctly, I picked up on two things. OK, sure. so the first thing you said was, at least from what I gathered, is that they aren't teaching young boys this content in a way that works for young boys. What I'm gathering is that you can't teach boys and girls in the exact same way. I guess with the girls, maybe it's like a little bit more straightforward where you just teach the content where when it comes to the boys, you have to explain why you have to explain the importance and the connection, if I'm gathering that correctly. And then the second thing uh, that I think I caught from it is that a lot of times, you know, the boys aren't being funneled to some of this stuff that uh, that might be more productive or that could lead to them uh, finishing school or doing extra school like college. And I would think maybe part of that kind of goes into that bubble thing that you were saying, Mm -hmm. where whatever gets people the most status in that specific bubble that they're in, that's the most visible is what Mm -hmm. the boys might be geared towards. And so maybe inner city boys in that bubble, the top people in that bubble are going to be athletes and musicians, which is why they put their energy towards that instead of maybe coding. Yeah. um, The second part, 100 percent on. And I would also toss in video games as well, because Mm -hmm. it's what they have access to. But back to the first part, you don't have to teach differently. You just have to understand the influences on young men and young ladies are different. And as long as you understand that, the content doesn't have to be different. I don't have to um, teach a whole different lesson for boys and girls. You don't have to separate them and you don't even have to um, make it about gender identification. What happens is it's about the intellectual level of the boys and young ladies in your class and in creating a foundation where if I have two or three young men who are on the level of some of my other young ladies who might be a little more developed, I can still put them in harmonious groups, let them work together, and then space out the other groups where everyone is pretty much on tier with who's in their group, where gender doesn't even become an issue. It's just a matter uh-huh. of how I choose to set the content. What I mean by young ladies develop um, faster than and young men is they do develop physically. Also, young ladies gravitate to the arts and social studies because they read um, think about how many times you've seen a young lady will tuck herself away and love to read. Now, when you find a young man who likes to read, for some reason, the adults don't foster that like they should. But young men do read. And sometimes they love reading. I have a young man that I, 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 I um, counsel right now. He blazes through Harry Potter books. And these are 700 page books. The thing is, understanding. And this is what's super important on the educator knowing who your children are and what their strengths are and having done an assessment that allows you to know what level every kid is on and then having those kids, like I said, in harmonious groups. So again, like to the point, you don't have to change the content. You have to change the entry points for the children. And then at that point, gender won't matter because you will have guys and girls together learning um, at the same pace, but at their pace, not just, okay, I'm going to funnel everybody through one way, do it the way I asked you to do it. And that's it. That never works. And with the second part, a lot of that has to do with the school's resources. If the school does not have resources, then they don't have programs. If you do not have programs, then what can you get the kids involved in? So coding is not a thing if it's not actually uh, accessible. So that is the reason why you see parents will up and move out of a community that they see the community starting to change because they know that their tax dollars fuel what goes into the school. Now, I've made that argument many years before when I was in New York is because if you take a a child who lives in Bay Ridge and you take a child that lives in parts of Flatbush where their families are affluent, color has no bearing because it doesn't make a difference. In a school where children are white and in a school where children are black, if they're affluent, their tax dollars are allowing them to have greater access. Whereas on the flip side of that, if you are in an environment where the, the, the situation, the social economic situation is different. Well, you could have a, a young white student who doesn't have access to certain things as much as you have a young black student. So a lot of it has to do with what programs are available to students that's going to foster stronger learning. And then as they go up the ladder, you're only fostering what was already planted years earlier, if that makes sense. I hope I was able to clear that up to make it make sense. Yeah, definitely. It makes sense now. And now that I think about it, kind of relating it to uh, how things were in my hometown 
I know the schools that were in the neighborhoods that maybe weren't as weren't as affluent mm-hmm. were probably closer to lower income. Mm-hmm. Those were the schools that had the different like special programs, you could say, like this one, the Pegasus program where yes, you did like right. advanced learning. They had the medical magnet for one of the high schools and like I think an engineering magnet at the other one. And so mm-hmm. it makes sense why those specific schools may have had these um, different programs to, I guess, offer exposure in these types of ways. Of course. And then other schools wouldn't. But then them having like the career center and all that as well, where they taught some of the kids welding and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. Whenever you frame it like that, it does make sense. And I can I can see the connection now with that. Got you. Think of it like this. Specialized schools in New York. Right. Look at how the line goes around the corner for testing to get into Brooklyn Tech, Stuyvesant, um, Bronx. Uh, I think it's, uh, I forget which school is in the Bronx, but every school has a specialized, every borough has a specialized school. The line is around the corner for everyone for the testing when they only have but so many spots. And the same on the middle school level, when you have, say, Brooklyn, Mark Twain was a specialized school. Everybody wanted to get into Mark Twain, but you had to actually not only be academically smart, you had to have some type of talent. So you actually had to show that you could play the trombone or do something else. So when you have a school that says, I only want a certain level of student who comes in, well, why wouldn't they be able to get the money? Because you're going to get grants because no one's going to waste certain grants when they know quality kids are there. Now, on the flip side, when you have Title I schools, which means there's more kids getting free lunch than anything else, in Title I schools, there are tons of money that comes into those programs. The sad part about that is that, unfortunately, it is, it's not shaped in a way that you can create the programs to sustain them because often the environments are not used to having quality programs like this in place. So they either don't use them or they abuse them. And, and, and it's hard to just put it on, on the community itself, but unfortunately, a lot of our schools will reflect the community that it's in. Now, many of us on the inside of those schools are gonna do what we can to try to keep the outside influences out so we can do the things that we do inside the best that we can, but also there's only gonna be but so much money that can come into an environment if it's being wasted. And unfortunately, with certain environments, the reason why the outside environment is negative, because there is a disconnect with the way certain things should be handled. Well, you're going to see that reflected in the school. It just goes hand in hand. The social economic piece is is critical and has to be part of any discussion because I can't expect folks to to really respect education if the educational level in the environment is low to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't try to teach or we don't try to reach those parents, but we have to understand what a child is going home to when you want to try to now introduce them to something else. I could introduce a child to Shakespeare, have a wonderful time speaking about Shakespeare inside the classroom, but what expectation do I have that the child is going to be able to go home, have a conversation about Shakespeare, or even be exposed to more of Shakespeare when it may not even be something that's ever been picked up or talked about in his environment. And that has to be taken into consideration when creating any program or setting up any school. So it sounds like poverty culture is really the biggest obstacle from the way that you kind of worded that, right? Yeah, it's real. Um, It's very real. And, And the funny thing is it's not addressed as it should be, except often to the negative. We will talk about the violence, we will talk about the, the rate of suspensions. We will talk about the rate of dropouts. We'll talk about all the negatives, but we don't try to latch on to the real strong positive stories and then find ways to recreate that. The other part is you also don't get the quality professionals to take on the jobs in, in the more needy areas because they don't want to come. You know, we got, a, we got a lot of great teachers who are doing their thing, but you don't have a lot of people who want to go into environments where they got to worry about their car. They got to worry about just trying to get in and go home. And these, and I get it. I listen, I tell anybody, don't come into the environment if it's just not something you want to deal with, because it is rough. And that plays a role too. I honestly believe if the city of New York or any urban area in, in, in the country would just simply agree to pay off student loans for every year that a person stays after working three years, And the reason why I say three years, three years for middle school, four years for high school, because if a kid comes in in fifth grade 
and you have a staff that is together for at least three years. That means that child came in at sixth grade, graduated eighth grade with the same set of teachers. Now you've created stability. If you do it for high school, four years. So if a teacher comes in in four years and they stay there four years and you pay off their student loan, now a kid comes in on the ninth grade, those four years, they have the same set of teachers. You now have stability. You now have familiarity. Now, all of a sudden, your, your kids are responding to, oh, that's Mr. Kamani. I, yeah, I had him in ninth grade. He was my ninth grade English teacher. I got him for English now, 11th grade. Your understanding of the kids grows. The kids' understanding of the school grows. Parents feel a little more comfortable. And on the lower ages, same thing. Take some of those teachers and say, okay, if you stay with these kids the first five years from K to five, you'll have your student loans paid off. And again, the kids benefit from having those individuals that the kids see. And you benefit when you see um, you getting out the car and a kid has seen you two years, three years. That's comfort. That's safety. All of a sudden now the opportunity to learn goes up. We don't do that. So why would a, a young, vibrant teacher stay in a very volatile area? And why would a veteran stay in a volatile area? So they're going to go to where they somewhere else. And then unfortunately, some of them just leave the system altogether. It makes sense. And you pretty much just gave a, a solution to at least that half of the problem. But, you know, while that solution isn't in place, I can definitely see how that causes a an issue that just keeps going and going and going. Yes, because, sir. yeah, if you can do the same job somewhere else, you know, easier, why not go do it there? It seems like the only people that would stick in that position, like what you're talking about, are the ones that have some sort of tie to that, whether they find some sort of purpose in doing that work, they find that work more fulfilling because they know how much more of a need there is for it there, or maybe they came from it and they're trying to be like, I guess you could say like a, a beacon of, of hope or like, you know, a, a symbol of um, something like a, a success in a way. But you're forgetting the one, the failed educator ends up there. See, uh, the failed educator doesn't stay in the gifted schools because he, he can't make it. So what happens? Because he has his license or she has his license, they end up falling into the hands of the school with the openings. Well, what schools have the openings? The worst schools. So how do they get better if the worst teachers are landing in the worst schools? Oh, wow. Because there are some people that should not be teaching, but you know why they are? Because they get the summers off. And if you go back to what I said to you earlier, it is the easiest job on the planet if you don't care, because you can give out foolishness and the kids pass, you get the summers off and you're paid for those summers. And if you do your three or four or five years, or now I think it's five in New York City, um, you get tenure, you can't be fired. So unless you do something outrageous, you can't be fired. So they do just enough not to get fired. And there's not a lot that, that can be done. And we have to take that into consideration too. This is why you see parents were so excited when charter schools started in New York City. And I can only speak for New York City right now, and I'm in Delaware and I can see some of the same things here, is that Parents try to put their kids in private school or in charter schools because there was more control that or more involvement that they were able to have. And charter schools have the ability of saying, oh, Kamani's a bad kid. He got to go and they can kick you out tomorrow. You can't do that in public school. You can't kick a kid out of public school because there's nothing else for them. So private school, if you're paying, you're always going to get more for what you pay for. Think about it. Free lunch is free lunch. But if I go out and pay for a meal, I, there's certain expectations that come what I'm paying for. That's why parents pay for a private school, because if you're paying for it, then you can have the higher expectations. So again, anytime something is free, you have to really take a hard look at why it's free and what am I actually getting um, because it's free. And when you really get to the heart of it, you will see that a lot of great talk is done in, in certain urban environments, but the actual work that needs to be done is not done because you can't justify the amounts of money that are wasted when you literally see kids not having some of the essentials, but yet have to take the same exam as the kids in the affluent neighborhoods to be able to move forward. So how fair is that if the kid who doesn't have resources has to take the same exact test on the same exact day as a kid in an affluent neighborhood, you don't ever catch up. And I read a book, um, the, the, the author's name was uh, Jawanza Kanjufu. He talked about in, in school systems actually create uh, class systems where some kids were never actually designed to catch up because you need a working class. And then some kids were, were are literally groomed to be the owners and the supervisors and, and other things simply. And there's some truth to that. Because again, when you get out of high school and you barely made it, well then transit 
and, and the, the, the transit system, sanitation system, these are fantastic jobs that don't require a lot of skills, but will pay you a living wage guaranteed to go that route if that's what's available to you. What's interesting to me is that uh, you would think that, you know, like a city or like, you know, state government would have incentive to want their kids that are growing up in those communities to be educated, right? To be productive citizens. But then when you framed it like that, it just makes me think that uh, I'm not going to go as far as to say it's, it's by design by me. I guess you did say that, but uh, it kind of makes me think maybe that's why it's acceptable to maybe not make some of these changes or have it, like you said, where uh, let's say, you know, the teacher stayed there for the three years together to have the same staff for the kids. It's like, I mean, well, we need some kids to fill these, these uh, lower roles. Right. Or mm-hmm. just like we could even talk about private prisons. We need some of these kids to be delinquents and come and fill these private prisons that are for profit to, you know, make, make jeans and, and things like that. Be careful. All of a sudden, if, if the lights flicker and all of a sudden your show go off, you know, I understand okay. what happened because the prison, the, the school, the prison pipeline is real. And as a, and as a dean of students, um, which is what I finished up the last, I, I worked 22 plus years. Um, I was a dean of students for the last nine. And that is very real. I once got written up because I refused to suspend the student. I was told by the principal who will remain nameless. Why are you spending so much time talking to that young man? I said, because I can reach him. And he, me and him have a good relationship. I don't care. Suspend him. Because I don't want those numbers. I don't want his behavior on our books, meaning that the more he gets in trouble, the more those numbers count. They're called occurrences. So she literally was like, he's going to end up in jail anyway, so we don't have to worry about that. Now, this is a principal of a school that says we don't have to worry about a young individual, a young man whose future has not been de- determined yet, or has it? Because if you just do the research, now people can argue it, but there is a clear, researchable connection to young dropouts and people who are suspended often and entering prison at younger ages. There is a clear connection to those who do not do well in school, with ending up in prison because there is no alternatives. Now, if you want to talk about how the system has changed, we have removed Voltec. So there are really not as many Voltec schools where you can learn um, hands-on trades while in school to be able to finish school and literally go to work. That has been removed. We have removed arts programs from the majority of schools in urban environments. So that avenue has been removed from a lot of students. So if academia is not the strength of many of the students in some of these schools, then where are you actually leading them to when you've taken away some of the other avenues that used to be there in school, like Woodshop, not there. I'm old enough that when I went to school, you had home ec. That's not there. Art is not there. Music is not a thing in many schools. And in some schools, you're barely having physical education and health education, which in New York City, it is required to be five days a week. I argue with anybody who's in New York City to show me that they're having gym five days a week. Not happening. You're having it once, maybe twice, and then they may flip it that you don't have gym and have health. So then where's the kid actually getting the physical fitness part of it? So now you've taken away all those avenues. So when the kid fails, why are we shocked when they end up in the industrial prison industrial complex? It almost seems like the default and then something that kind of compounds with that, too. And, you know, I just only speak on this because, you know, we're both black men. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like it's something that I notice in the community where um, you talked about the school to prison pipeline. But it Mm -hmm. reminded me of a term I heard called the rap to prison pipeline. That's, I guess, kind of got a similar function. You can you can say to that, uh, not going to get into like all the details of that, but I know one of the things that's promoted in, you know, like a lot of the music and then even in like black masculinity, at least in poverty, it kind of aligns with some of these same things as if it's like making it to where, you know, that's going to be the majority of, I guess, the result for the majority, uh, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes a lot of sense. Just ask. I, I always tell folks, I don't just speak off the top of my head. I try to bring facts to the table because it, it takes away from conjecture. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the outcome. Why does or why do these large music 
corporations invest millions in private in prisons, black prison type language, meaning promoting prostitution, promoting pimping, promoting drug dealing, promoting violence, murder, providing all the misogynistic behaviors that you can squeeze into any rap album. But when an artist attempts to do a, a, a cognitive different album, an uplifting or anything like that, not only is it not promoted, it gets no push or no play. And the reason for that is because you do not go away from what makes you money. And, and as much as we want to talk, folks don't want to have the real conversation of people are not going to lay down money just because it's the right thing to do. That's not, that doesn't happen. So you will, like, I tell folks, and I joke with kids, and I work with the young men, I go, you know who won the first hip-hop Grammy? It was Will Smith. But parents just don't understand. First hip-hop Grammy. Who was the most hated person in hip-hop with that same album? Will Smith. He's not a real rapper. That's, I don't know what that is. That's white people rap. All this foolishness. When in actuality, Will Smith put the time in on the streets. Will Smith was one of the the best battle rappers coming out of Philly in, in his time. Will Smith's lyrical play is outstanding, but what he realized it wasn't making money. So he came up with this whole gimmick and playfulness and it sold because he got other people outside of the social environment that he was used to, to buy into it. And all of a sudden they bought and it sold tons of records. And here's the crazy part. And I tell this to kids too, pick any hip hop artist you think is, is on whatever level. Go look at Will Smith's record sales. He has sold as much as any rapper out there. His lyrics are right there with any rapper out there. But the reason why is because he's always been the, I don't curse. I don't promote the sexual things. He talks about it when you, when you look at it. And he's taken a hit for that because he's never been respected as the icon that he should be in the rap game because he did it clean. But that's not promoted. That's not that's not sold to those same environments, those, those social economic environments that we talked about. Now, when you bring the prison pipeline in, I do have that conversation with men in school. When you create a prison, what's the one thing that you have to know you're going to have? Bodies. I don't build, we built more prisons in the last 15 years in urban environments than schools. Why? You have to know you're gonna have people to fill them. And why not put some of that same energy, effort, and money into the schools? Because it's, the design was never to have kids in certain environments actually excel. The, the, wow. the numbers bear it out. It's really crazy to think about. And if you compare the uh, incarceration rates in America to pretty much any other country that's developed you know, at the same rate that we are, it's really, it's really not even close. Like The numbers are so staggering. That I, don't it, think we're it in the top I don't think we're in the top 10 in any of the educational parts around the world. I don't believe the United States is in the top 10 in education in all the large industrial countries. Wow. I think we're 17th overall math. I think we're 20 something. And I think English we're up around 13 or something, but we're definitely not in the top 10 in the industrial countries. And, and, and we're the richest country. How is that a, a situation? Because we have more urban environments throughout the country and low economic environments than we do affluent. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize for that. I know it just gives a whole lot to, to think about, really. Yeah. And just do the research. And I tell folks, don't. I'm 54 years old. I did 20, almost 25 years, and I'm still in the game in terms of doing mentor. But just do the, check the numbers. Don't. You don't have to listen to me. Go look at the numbers and look at the number of, 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 of the population of inmates with the numbers of dropout students of all colors. See, the color thing is pushed because it's an easy thing to hide behind. Mm -hmm. forget, the, forget that. Look at the numbers of whites, blacks, Latinos, Asians. Look at their graduation rate. Look at their incarceration rate. Here's what you will see. Those who drop out of school at the higher rates go to school at the faster rates. Our Asian brothers and sisters do not drop out of school. They do not fail. So they don't go to jail as, as much as our counterparts of our, our, our brothers and sisters of color. 
um, are Latinos and, and, and white folks, same thing. If you look at it, you will see that it is not about color. It is about the environment that you live in. And so when you take a kid out of an urban, I'm reading right now, John Thompson's book, I Came as a Shadow. He was going to a public school that was all white. He asked the gentleman that he traveled to school with, they had to hitchhike to school. They didn't have a way to get there. He asked the guy, he said, do you think our people think we're sellouts because we're going to St. whatever? He said, yes. He said, but in the long run, it's going to be better for us. So his, they had to deal with their own thinking that they were negative going to a school where they could do better. But at the better school, they were considered learning disabled. And he had, and I didn't know that, that he was considered learning disabled. And he had to learn to get past that stigma to eventually go on to be one of the greatest coaches that ever walked the sidelines of a college. So there's, there's a lot to that, and that's not by accident because, again, it's not like we can close our eyes to the history of this country, but the history of this country does not have to dictate what goes on, but unfortunately it does. So moving forward, for anybody listening to this, mm-hmm. yeah, that might come from a background where education may not be you know, the biggest priority, or at least like for the, for the young men, it's not something that's as pushed or like prioritized. What would you say that that individual could do on their own to uh, help fight the issue? I'm so glad you asked that question. Take control of your own learning. Malcolm X was self-taught. A lot of individuals are self-taught. If you have a cell phone, You have the whole world in your hand. You have access to libraries from all over the world. If you're on social media, you have access to information. Don't let things that are in place to stop you, stop you when you can control how much you actually spend time reading. And if you can't read, okay, I listen to audiobooks. I'm listening to John Thompson's um, autobiography. Listen to it. You'll still retain it. But put the work in for yourself. Libraries have been free since the 1950s or 40s, actually. So if you can't afford books, well, you can afford a library card. What is it, a dollar? I mean, an Audible membership is like $14, $15 a month. Same thing as Netflix. You get a free book every every month. But everybody got a Netflix account, but they don't have an Audible account. So you're 100% right. But that's what I would suggest is that look at how you're spending your time. Look at how you're spending your money and look at where you're positioning yourself intellectually. Take advantage of the fact that you shouldn't wait on anyone to teach you. What you want to do is once you start learning, it'll dictate where you should go to get more information. Because the minute that you start to learn on your own, now you'll gravitate to people because you want it to make sense. Now you'll come to you, Brother Kamani. You'll come to me and say, Brother Kamani, I, I, I listened to like the prison pipeline, this guy's book said this. Can you clear that up for me? Now we're engaging in higher level conversation. Now we're, we're dealing with actual intellectual conversation because the person did the, 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 the minuscule work first. Now what you go to search changes. So that's what I would say to anybody listening. Don't let systems prevent you from bettering you. Systems were designed to put roadblocks in. Okay, go around them. Libraries, Audible, just, just even if you just go to the Goodwill, there's books there. You can get a book for like a quarter. Take it home and read it. Enhance that part of yourself. And all of a sudden, the rest of the world starts to seem a little bit different. That's what I would offer. Hey, thank you for that. And for those people that would like to find you, uh, where could they go? Sure. Um, I am on all social media platforms as Keith K.L. Belvin. I am on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. My website is Braven, B-R-A-V-I-N, BravenConsultants.com. My books are on Braven, B-R-A-V-I-N, Publishing.com. But what I simply tell folks to do is do a Google search. Just do a Google search for Keith K.L. Belvin. All my information will find up. And if you want to find me, you'll be able to find me. And I'm here to do private counseling as well. When you reach out, I can give you my link to my discovery um, 
my discovery link where we can get a, a private call because what I do is I don't turn away anybody. I'll at least have that initial conversation. Yes, I do charge a fee for my counseling, but I make myself available because I don't just talk about it. I live it. And if nothing else, if I can't help you, I won't hurt you. I'll send you in a direction of where you want to go. I'm on um, live at least once or every two weeks or once a week. Um, but I have a, a almost 400 videos on my YouTube page. So I pretty much talk about everything from relationships to counseling, to women, to men, to whatever. And I try to make myself as available as possible. I try to put out as much as possible. So if you really want to find me, you will be able to. And I look forward to speaking to everyone. All right. Hey, thank you for that. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. I think you offered a lot of value and definitely uh, offered some perspective on some things that you know I didn't think as deeply into until now. And I'm sure some of the other people listening probably had a similar experience. So I, I thank you. And brother, I, I want to say to you, one, you, you run a, a very great platform here. You do a, an incredible job. You ask some very interesting questions. And I just pray that uh, you will continue to be blessed in what you're doing. Um, don't stop. Just be as consistent as possible because you're providing a service because anybody who listened, it wasn't just me talking. It was your question shaping where we went. And I think that's super important. I think anybody watching, please share this young man's information, tell somebody to come and listen and watch what's going on. Make sure that you you write about it, talk about it on every platform that you have, because for us to be able to get quality information out, we have to back young men like this who are actually putting the time in to get it done. And I'll say this to you publicly, whenever you need me, you call me, I will be here to support because I believe in what you're doing. And I think this is the, the new way that we have to be able to get information out because this is how we beat those systems because you're unrestricted on your platform, which means you shape what you bring here. And if you're consistent at it, that means you're already chipping away at a lot of the negatives that are out there because you're bringing to the table an intelligent man of color who's open to have conversations with everyone and you're not limiting yourself. Man, that by itself is, is better than the norm. So you keep doing what you're doing and anything that I can help with, by all means, just ask. Hey, I, I really appreciate that support. You know, it means a lot. For you to co-sign me like that and to uh, care much about what I'm doing and try and support, I definitely appreciate that. No doubt. No doubt. Anytime. Anytime. And just like I said, I hope that anybody watching, and I, I make that plea because I think, and, and to my older brothers, I do want to say one last thing too, to, my, to the OGs or the old heads. These are the young men that we have to pour in. Okay, you had whatever bumps and roads or whatever that you went through to get to, and if you're over 50 like I am, Okay, you've been through some things. The goal should be now to turn around and pour everything you can into those young men coming up behind us. That's how we change what's going on out here. You cannot get to the point that you're old and bitter and say they got to figure out their way because I had to. No, that doesn't help anybody. That actually helps the systems that are out here doing negative. It is imperative that you turn to someone behind you, pour into them and let them grow from your knowledge. And trust me, in the end, He'll do the same for somebody else. We have to believe that. All right. Thank you for that. And so, yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. And so I enjoy talking to you. Yes, I'll sir. make sure to keep in touch. Yes, I look forward to it. And listen, have a wonderful evening. Again, thank you for allowing me on your platform. Yes, thank you.